Well, good morning. I hope that you have been able to um, read some days in your devotional, if you were able to get one last week. It's called Hope Changes Everything, and Pastor Quentin and I wrote it together. If you weren't able to get one, there's more in the next, uh, the next steps area. You can grab one on your way out. Um, but together, as a church, we are walking through 21 days of looking at Matthew 26, 27, and 28. And so it's all centered around that content. And the idea really is, is that Easter was a great celebration, but it is something we can celebrate every Sunday all year long. And so I'm excited to just kind of continue our study on Easter um, today and for the next few weeks. So what I would like to do um, for the next two weeks is uh, do one of those things they do in movies sometimes and flash back, okay? I want to rewind the tape a little bit, and I want us to look at the things that happened uh, that led up to the resurrection, because they are really important to us to not overlook. And so we're going to st- uh, look at Matthew 26 this week. We're going to look at Matthew 27 next week, and I preached Matthew 28 last week. So see how that went? Brilliance. All right, so that's what we're going to look at today. So in Matthew 26, uh, we see a lot of things happening. It's a really rich chapter of the scripture. First, uh, we see a woman who anointed Jesus with some very expensive perfume. She brings this perfume to him, and she breaks it over him. And the disciples say uh, very frugally, why are you wasting that? You You could have fed so many people by, do, by giving that away, by cashing it in and giving it to people, why are you wasting it? And Jesus responds with this sort of prophetic statement in Matthew 26, 12, and says, when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. And the disciples aren't exactly sure what that means, but they see, they begin to see Jesus is talking more clearly about what's about to happen to him. So directly after that, we watch as Judas makes a deal with the chief priests to turn Jesus in for 30 pieces of silver. Now, in Hebrew culture, I don't know if you know this, but 30 pieces of silver actually isn't very much. It's not a lot of money. In fact, it was the exact price uh, paid to the master of a slave if if an animal experienced accidental death, okay? So... Uh, excuse me, if the slave experienced accidental death. So the slave's death was compensated by the 30 pieces of silver. So if the slave was working with an ox and the ox ran him over and killed him, the person who owned the ox would give the slave owner 30 pieces of silver in compensation for the death of the slave. So it's interesting because there's another place in scripture that we see this reference of 30 pieces of silver, and that's in Zechariah 11:13. and I want you to look at it today. It says, and the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and I threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. So we see in this book of Zechariah that he's a shepherd. Okay, so he's a worker, He's a worker, he has a master, and he goes to those that he worked for, and he asks them to pay him for what he thought he was worth, and they give him 30 pieces of silver, which is very insulting, because that is like saying, you were just a slave, 
If something happened to you, that's all that we think that you're worth. And so in the scripture in Zechariah, he sarcastically says, for this handsome price, because it was such this small amount. And so the employer meant to insult Zechariah with this amount of money. And so returning the insult, God tells Zechariah, you know, just throw it to the potter. Just throw it to the potter. And Zechariah tosses the money into the house of the Lord to be given to the potter. And that's exactly what happens. That, that's recorded in history. And in that time, no one really understands why they're even telling that story. There isn't a lot of connection. But we see later on in the New Testament that these actions are shockingly accurate and detailed prophecy of when Judas bargains with the leaders of Israel to betray the Lord Jesus. He says to them, what are you going to give me if I deliver him to you? What is it that you want in exchange? And they count out 30 pieces of silver, and that's all they considered Jesus to be worth. A slave's value. And later in the scripture, we see that Judas is overcome with guilt. He's overcome with guilt for betraying Jesus. And he unknowingly fulfills Zechariah's prophecy because he throws the 30 coins back to the temple and says, take the money back. I wish I could take back everything I did, but at least take the money back. I don't want to be compensated for this. And he throws the coins into the temple and the Jewish leaders take those 30 pieces of silver and they buy a potter's field. And later on, we see that it was in that field that Judas hung himself after he betrayed Jesus. This is not random. This is not by chance. This is because we serve a sovereign, omnipotent, God-promise-fulfilling God. And so we watch as this unfolds, and, and no one even knows the pieces. Why did Judas pick that field? We don't know. He didn't know the chief priests had bought it for 30 pieces of silver. All of it had come together to this huge conclusion to fulfill the prophetic promises of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And so Matthew 26 goes on. And in verses 17 through 30, it talks all about how Jesus eats the Last Supper and, and he's with his disciples and he's breaking the bread and he's passing the cup. And we do this once a month here at Erie First, that exact sort of set up so that we can understand what Jesus did with his disciples. And, and he is showing them again, I, I am foreshadowing to you. This is my impending death on the cross. My body's about to be broken. My blood's about to be shed so that you can uh, experience forgiveness of sin. And so he's telling them this over and over. But what's interesting is even though the disciples get these warnings and these prophetic messages and and Jesus is sort of subtly and not so subtly explaining to them, this is what's about to happen. They are still not completely digesting it. They are still kind of sitting around to each other thinking, why is he doing that? What is about to happen? And the tension is building. It's like in the movie when the music gets really intense. And you're, you know something's about to happen. And if you're like me, I shout out, go run away. And Joel's like, you're spoiling it. But you know, it's coming, right? You know, something is coming in that moment. The tension is building. These, these men and women are, are grieving. They're brokenhearted. Jesus is telling them, I'm about to die. I know you're confused and frustrated by this. I'm your friend, but I'm going to do this. And they can't fully understand. And so you have to remember sort of the scene that's happening, 
And the passage I want to dive in the deepest to this morning in Matthew 26 is when Jesus is in the garden. And so let's just look at that together. It is found in Matthew 26, 36 through 45. So it says, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And so here we really see Jesus at his lowest point of his human life. He's sorrowful. He's troubled. He, he's overwhelmed to the point of death. He describes that of himself. We see him struggling. And all he wants is his friends. All he wants is his, his friends, who are like family, to be close with him. And I think this just shows a huge part of humanity, doesn't it? That this is how Jesus created us. I think for me, no matter how old you get when you're sick, there's nothing like your mom's couch and chicken noodle soup, right? You just want to go home. The other week, we had that hailstorm that came through uh, right near our house, big, huge pieces of hail. And the storm had told us it was coming, and so the girls and I uh, huddled in the stairwell just to be safe. And as it passed through, my middle child, Haley, who's six, just started weeping because it was a little scary. And she said, I just want to go home. And I said, Haley, you are home. And she's like, oh, then I want to go to Papa's. <laughs> like she, <laughs> wherever this isn't happening. But in her heart, she just wanted to go home. She wanted to go to the place that feels safe. When we have a bad day, we just want to go home. And in our darkest, kind of deepest times, we don't always need advice. We don't always need someone to fix it. We just need people who love us. And that's what Jesus says here. He says, would you just sit with me? He knows that they can't do anything for him, but his humanity is coming out right there. Would you just sit here? Would you just watch with me? Would you just pray with me? And it says, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground, and he prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And again, we see Jesus' humanity coming out God, if I can skip this part of the process, would you please just push me through? If there's any way, if there's any way that I don't have to walk through this pain, God, would you, would you take it from me? And then in verse 40, he returns to his disciples and he finds them sleeping. He says, couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so here's his closest friends, the people he needs the most in this moment. And they fall asleep. And it's not because the hour was late or they were tired after a long day or because how full they were from dinner. They fell asleep. The gospel, uh, Luke, uh, it describes this it says that they were exhausted from sorrow. They were exhausted from sorrow. They fell asleep because they were so disappointed. They were so depressed. They were so confused. And I just wonder if you've ever felt that way. If you've ever been so sad and so brokenhearted and so overwhelmed that you could just sleep until it stops hurting. 
If you've ever felt that way, then you know how the disciples felt that day. They couldn't keep their eyes open because the pain of what was happening was almost too much to bear for humanity. And so they just fell asleep. And Jesus experiences this moment where even his closest friends are letting him down. They're disappointing him. They're not there for him. And he truly is about to experience complete abandonment from God as well. But before that, he experiences all the certain pain from the people that he loves the most and that, that they love, that love him the most. All right, let's go to verse 42. He went away a second time and he prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. He surrenders. God, I'll do what you want. And when he comes back, he again finds them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. And so he left them and he went away once more and he prayed a third time saying the same thing. And then he returned to the disciples and he said to them, are you still sleeping? Unreal. Are you still resting? Because look, the hour that I've been talking about for all this time, it's here. And the Son of Man has delivered into the hands of sinners. So rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And I believe that Jesus did this because he wanted the disciples to understand that he was not caught off guard by Judas's actions. Nothing surprises God. It may surprise us, but God is not surprised even by our sin. God knows what was going to happen. And so it says, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. And with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and elders of the people. And now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. And going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. And so Jesus and the disciples have hit the valley. The moments in the, in the garden show us some of the most hopeless moments they felt. They were exhausted from sorrow. But interestingly, Jesus isn't in a dark valley because of his sin. He is there because of ours. He has hit the lowest point of his human life, not because of what he did, or what he deserved, but because of ours. Because of all of humanity before us and because of all of humanity after us, the sin, the weight of the sin of the world was upon him. And I think since the beginning of time, people have tried to define sin in word pictures. In the Old Testament, they used to use words like bent or crooked, a breach of trust, the most widely used word in the Old Testament to describe sin was the word chatha, which meant to miss the goal or to depart from God's purposes. And the main word used in the New Testament for sin is hamarta, meaning to miss the mark. You may have heard that one, to miss the mark. Now, sin is heavy. It was heavy on Jesus because it was the weight of the world. But really, in all reality, we can relate to this because sin causes all kinds of problems in the world and in our lives. In fact, I think it can take much of the credit for the pain and the grief that we understand and experience in our lives. Sin uh, causes alienation. Although we're designed to be God's friends, we're designed to be God's children, uh, sin leads us to be enemies of God. Sins us, sin leads us to flee from God's presence, and we push aside this priceless and valuable relationship that God offers, and we alienate ourselves willingly. It is not God who is far from us. It's us who is far from God. We want to 
build a fortress, not let God come in because of our shame and our embarrassment of what we've done. And as people, we live in fear. We, we presume that God is hostile toward us, but the truth is we are the hostile ones. And so then in kind of our, our infinite dependence, we just want to do it our own way. We run from the, one who, the only one who can overcome our fear and our brokenness and our, our hostility, the only one that can meet our deepest needs, but we're the one running from him. So if we would just come to him, he could meet all those things. But yet, the humanity of who we are, the sin in us, makes us do that. And it even alienates us from our true selves. I think sin causes us to simply just not be who we're meant to be. It steers us away from our destiny. It steers us away from our calling. Let's be real. It, it messes up our life. <laughs> it just messes it up. It messes up the, the plan that God has. In fact, in Romans 21, it says that sin darkens our hearts. In 1 Timothy 6.5, it says sin corrupts our minds. 1 Corinthians 2.14 reminds us that sin doesn't allow us to even understand spiritual truths, that it keeps us outside of God's best. It makes us hard to the word of God. A.W. Tozer is this theologian that talks about something he calls sins of weakness. And these are those uh, respectable sins that more or less are allowed by everyone. These behaviors and attitudes that have been woven into the religious fabric of society that are barely noticeable. And these sins are so common that they have been accepted as normal by the average Christian and not mentioned at all. And they're things like selfishness and gluttony and, and borderline dishonesty and holding grudges and gossiping and critical spirit. They're all those things. It's the media we consume. It's the, it's the way we spend our time. It's all of these things that just because everyone else is doing it, we don't have conviction about it. And I think that these are more dangerous because they go unrepented of. They, they make us, they, we never change them. We just do them forever and ever. And, and they, they inhabit our being and they slowly take over until we become maybe something we never thought we would be. And I think that's what happened to Judas. I don't think he always had evil intentions. But I think he let sin dig a valley. I think he let jealousy and love of money and dishonesty dig him deeper and deeper into this valley and he never repented of it and he never tried to change and it ended in him betraying the God of the universe. I once heard this, that your proximity to God, your intimacy to God can be measured by the amount of time it takes for you uh, to be convic convicted of your sin. Okay, so let me give you an example. There are times when I'm selfish about something. I make a selfish choice, and weeks go by until I realize, like, how incredibly unfair I was being in that situation, how incredibly selfish I was being. And I'm sure in that moment of selfishness that the Holy Spirit was trying to warn me. He was trying to tell me. But because my proximity, my intimacy with the Lord was far, it took weeks for me to realize it. I didn't catch the red flag that the empire was throwing. I need to connect with God's presence more. So, so when he tells me I'm being selfish, I hear him. On the other hand, have you ever been, been saying something and as the words were leaving your lips, tell me, have you ever had this experience? As the words are leaving your lips, you feel God's gentle nudging. You promised you wouldn't tell anybody that. You are, being, you are really being critical right now. 
Has that ever come out of your mouth? That instantaneous conviction can indicate that you are plugged into God's voice. And so I want to tell you, if you have not felt conviction for a long time, if you have not felt um, that gentle nudge of the Holy Spirit, hey, that, that isn't quite right, that isn't quite my purposes, it's probably not because you are living a sinless life. It may be because you haven't repented for any sin for a while. So go to God. Ask him to show you the things in your life that don't please him. Ask him to restore that small voice in your spirit. And then that will let you know that you're missing the mark. I want to share with you a great tool in the scripture in Psalm 51, if you need some words to say for repentance. Psalm 51 was written by a man named David Um, after he had had an adulterous affair with a woman named Bathsheba. And David was so broken. He was so brokenhearted. He he, he was so brokenhearted about how far his, his own heart had gotten from God. And he was facing consequences for these choices. Like Bathsheba's husband was then sent into war. He got killed in battle. The son that he had conceived with Bathsheba had died. And so there was all this heartache and all this consequence, and he was super disappointed in himself, and, and he, he felt like he had all this pain that seemed to have no good purpose. And so he goes to God in this repentance in Psalm 51, and God is still working. God still has a plan. Remember from last week, Jesus is still working in the dark places. If you find yourself in the darkest place, Jesus is still working there. And David writes this psalm in response to his own sin. And I believe this is a model that we can follow as well. You might want to just jot this down. Uh, The first thing we do is confess. We confess. First he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. He owns it. He humbles himself. He tells God, this is how I miss the mark. He owns it. Then he asks for cleansing. He says, cleanse me from hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. He knows God can do this. He knows God can take all of the sin and the the heartache and the pain away and can cleanse him. Then he says, create new. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And he tells God, I don't want you just to take out the old. I want you to put in something new. Don't just rid me of the sin in my life, but add back in the joy and the peace and the generosity and the purpose and the calling that you designed for me. Don't leave that spot empty. Fill it with your Holy Spirit. And then he says, restore my calling. And we see that it says, uh, then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. David cries out, God, would you show me what I am made to be and what I'm made to do? Restore back to my purpose and calling. Don't let sin steal away what I'm designed to be. You know, sin breaks trust, right? In the natural, sin breaks trust. If you lie to someone, they don't trust you anymore. If you cheat, they don't trust you anymore. Sin breaks trust. And we can't expect God to entrust a calling to us until we fully confess and ask for the cleansing. David's deepest desperation and darkest valley led to this great revelation from God, but it all started with confession. And I want to remind you today that confession to God doesn't bring shame, it brings freedom. Confession to God doesn't bring shame, it brings freedom. And when you go to God with your sin and you repent of it, he never scolds you and says, 
and deberates you and makes you feel bad. Maybe that was your experience as a child. Maybe that was your experience as a spouse, but that is not what God does. God opens his arms to you, and when you bring your sin, he exchanges it for freedom. He exchanges it for freedom. All right, back to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is in a valley. He's in a dark, dark valley, and it's because of the sin of Judas, and soon it will, he'll die on a cross because of the sin of, of you and for me. And I think one of the most baffling questions is how could someone who knows Jesus so well hand him over to his enemies? I mean, Judas, Judas sat at the table during the Last Supper. He, he assisted in miracles. He fell asleep next to campfires talking to Jesus. He laughed at Jesus' jokes. He, he ate lunch with him almost every day for three years. I mean, Judas and Jesus were friends. This wasn't a random person. And I believe that an outsider never could have done this kind of damage to Jesus. It's like in our own lives, our friends and our family can hurt us far deeper than random strangers. Because we give them real estate of our heart. We give them our trust. And so only an insider who knew Jesus and have followed him could have hurt him so deeply. I think it's even conceivable that Judas could have loved Jesus. We know that Jesus loved Judas. And we see Jesus' last words to Judas. And this, this has got to shake you when you think about it. Judas kisses him on the cheek. And Jesus says, do what you came for, friend. Now, he wasn't saying this sarcastically or snarky. I believe that he was genuinely reminding the people that betray him. That he was genuinely reminding you and he was genuinely reminding me and he was genuinely reminding Judas in that moment that he was a friend of God. And perhaps in Judas's mind, we don't know, but maybe... This popped up when Jesus said that in John 15, 13, when, when Jesus explained, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. And Judas understood that scripture deeper that day than, than he ever did. Jesus was about to go to the cross to pay for the sin that Judas had just committed, and Jesus would indeed lay down his life for his friend. So that same theologian, A.W. Tozer, once said this. I want you to look at it. It says, inside every human heart are a cross and a throne. Wherever I put Jesus on the throne, I put Jesus. Whenever I put myself on the throne, I put Jesus on the cross. Whenever I put myself on the throne, I put Jesus on the cross. And so in this moment, Judas put his selfish ambitions on the throne, and that put Jesus on the cross. And as I was just processing this, even though I want to villainize Judas, I want to I wanna shake my head at him and like picture him as the worst person alive and as a traitor. And how could he do this to Jesus? And I want to get frustrated and mad and, 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 be, and judge him and think that I would never do that. But I'll be honest that I can't help but remarkably feel similar to him sometimes. Here we are, friends of God, honestly trying to love Jesus, and we're constantly enthroning ourselves, trying to be Lord of our own private kingdoms, controlling the outcome, rationalizing our behavior. But only one person can be on the throne. And when I am on the throne, there's no place for Christ in my life except for the cross. 
And so Judas had all these plans of his own, and so do we. But when we get off the throne of our lives, we die to our plans. We surrender the the managerial control of our own life, and we relinquish all the outcomes to God. Remember, God's the one in management. We are the laborers. He is the one. We, We need to relinquish our control. And this is what Jesus prayed over and over in the garden. He shows Before that even happens, he shows them. He says, listen, uh, uh, I'm going to pray this every day. Not my will, but yours be done, God. Not my will, but yours be done. You know, I think we want Judas to be a monster. We want Judas to be nothing like us at all. But the truth is, instead of trusting and surrendering, we try to be Lord of our lives many times. And this morning... The week after Easter, as we look at Jesus praying in the garden, surrendering to his Father, I want to encourage you to examine your heart, to invite Jesus into the rightful place on the throne of your heart. And so here's how we're going to end today. It's not going to be in the excitement or hoopla of Easter. That was a lot of fun, and I love celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. But this week, we're going to end in the quiet of the garden. There's a time to dance and there's a time to shout and that sometimes there's a time to reflect and a time to listen as Pastor Steve already talked about. And I just wanna invite you to come to the altar today. Just simple, not, not emotional, <laughs> just more of a choice to say, uh, Jesus, you're my savior, I love you, but you're also on the throne of my life. And that means that there's gonna be things that you're gonna adjust in me, that there's gonna be sin in my life that you're gonna tell me, hey, I mean, this, isn't, this is missing the mark. This is outside of what my purpose is and I'm gonna adjust it. And I'm not gonna try so hard to rationalize behavior or control things. I wanna love you and I want you to be Lord of my life. There are two parts of that. I believe Judas loved Jesus, but Judas didn't let Jesus be Lord of his life. And so this morning, I want to encourage you to really, really check yourself. You love the Lord, but are you also letting the Lord be the king of your heart on the throne of your life? And so we're just going to take a few minutes to do that. We're just going to ask God to meet us here. Ask God to, to help us hear and see what he wants us to hear and see as we think about when Jesus was in the garden. So let me pray. Would you stand? Father God, I thank you, Lord, that you showed us all the events that led up to the resurrection because they mean something to us. They show your credibility. They show, God, that you are who you say you are, that this isn't just a great story, but it actually happened. Lord, you show us that there is a prophetic fulfillment of prophecies, Lord God, of your promises, that even the 30 pieces of silver wasn't arbitrary, God, but it was exactly what you designed, you knew would happen. And so God, we thank you for your all-knowingness. We thank you for your omnipotence. We thank you for your sovereignty. And so this morning, we just come to you today in a simple, quiet way. And we just examine our hearts and we say, God, where is it that I'm unaligned with you? God, what part of my life do I need to refocus in so it honors you? God, where have I taken you off the throne and put you back on the cross? God, I invite you in to be on the throne of my life over my family, over my choices. God, over my attitudes, Lord, over my words. Lord, over my decisions, over my workplace 
over my marriage. God, over my college experience, Lord God, I invite you to come in and be the Lord of my life. I love you, and I also want you to be in charge. God, not my will, but yours. So God, I thank you for what you're going to do. I thank you for these men and women who came to experience you this morning. And Lord, we trust that you're here today. In Jesus' name, amen. So just would you come in the quietness of this and just reflect and then we'll sing one last chorus before we leave. up with a confidence we've cleaned our own shelf that he'll, he'll move among us 
So as we've done that this morning, now let's just pray out over those that we love and over this great nation. So God, we pray. So God, we pray to you, humble ourselves again. Lord, would you hear our cry? Lord, will you heal our land? That every eye will see, that every heart will know. The one who took our sin, the one who died and rose. So God, we pray to you, humble ourselves again. heart in this room, not just every nation, but every person, that you just breathe into us, you'd speak through your word as you've done this morning. I thank you for your overwhelming and reckless love that says, do what you came for, friend, even when we're betraying you, even when we're not worthy, you are faithful and true. So we just praise you for that. You are so good. We love you. We worship you. We declare you to be the Lord of our lives. We put you on the throne this morning.
Amen, amen. Have an awesome week. If you need prayer, we are up here. We love you. Don't leave without doing business with him this morning.